Thanks for joining us for more Open World Chat. Today, Leanne and I are going to continue our conversation with filmmaker Bill Simmons, looking at science fiction movies over the years that just haven't gotten enough love or simply been underappreciated. We're going to take some time in particular to look at films by women directors. Let's get back to our conversation. All right, John, you're up. Oh, it's my turn. I don't even know what number we're on here because I don't have my, my list number five. Okay. So this is one of those movies that is, um, by the dictionary definition of sci-fi, is definitely sci-fi. There's no question. But in terms of the sort of spirit of the movie, the the, the feel of the movie, it's it's really not. Uh, and that is a 2016 movie called Colossal. Yeah. <laughs> I hear some recognition it's, there. It's on my spillover <laughs> list, yeah. Uh, okay, Anne Hathaway, Jason yeah. Sudeikis, um, clearly – you know, science fiction elements as, as metaphor, as, as they often are. But, you know, I think in a, in a lot of sci-fi, you know, a lot of sci-fi stories walk that line before between metaphor and, well, non-metaphor, as in, you know, we're being realistic. We're giving you something that could happen or is happening or did happen. Nothing real about this. There's no, there's no claiming that, uh, you know, there is a uh, you know a playground in your neighborhood where if you step into it you you suddenly project a giant you know kaiju. But what comes out is just some just extraordinary metaphors about uh, about gender dynamics, particularly abusive relationships. And it's um, it's a terrific movie. It's funny when this I sought this out. I saw the trailers, which looked like a blast. It looked very entertaining. And it's one of these movies where the folks who make the trailers and, you know, the studio putting it out there, they don't know what to do with it. So this was packaged in the trailers as some sort of, you know, light, farcical, romantic comedy. And it ain't that. No. Not even close. Not no. by a long <laughs> shot. But it's, uh, yeah, I this one, I just can't recommend this enough. I love this movie. Yeah. Leanne, have you seen Colossal? I have. Yep. Yeah. 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 It's, I, I really thought that the, I agree with you about your, your trailer comment that it didn't quite nail it. I can see why they cut it that way because if you cut the trailer to really re- reflect the tone of the film, the trailer might turn people off actually, but you, it's still a, a, a worth your time and a good time. Uh, and the, the, particularly in the, the way that the central premise of the film is sort of revealed is uh, just delightful. Yeah. Yeah. But, with this particular one, we went with the kids, teenagers having fun. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I was kind of dragged along redu- reluctantly because the trailer was what I put into the category of a must miss. <laughs> so, <laughs> when we're watching the trailers while we're waiting for our movie to start and I see something that looks kind of like that one, I'm like, oh, nope, that's a must miss and I won't go see it. But my kids dragged me to it, and I really enjoyed it. It was definitely worth it. Yep. All right, so what are we? We're down to number four. Oh, number we're four. getting there. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this one's a 2004, and it is um, not. It was not unappreciated. It was it might have even won a bunch of awards and uh, stuff. But uh, I'm not sure everybody thought of it as sci-fi, but it definitely is, and it's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless yeah, Mind. Yeah. This is a Michel Gondry script by uh, what's his name Kaufman, right? Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, um, Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey. Uh, Jim Carrey's my favorite role, uh, acting role that Jim Carrey's ever done. It's a, he plays it very straight, although it's a film with a lot of humor in it. 
And uh, yeah, it's a gorgeous sort of meditation on relationships and memory. And um, uh, it's funny and heartbreaking and sort of ingenious and silly. And um, uh, I just, uh, I just really like this film. Yeah. Yeah, This was the first movie I saw with Jim Carrey in it where I thought, boy, he actually can act. All right, John, what's your number four? Number four is, uh, for me, is uh, Darren Aronofsky's first movie, Pie, from 1998. I love this movie. It's a bit of a reach to call it science fiction, but it, it does focus around math. So I think math gets you to the, you know, the science fiction definition. But what it really is, is math horror. It, it is a, in a unique category in that way. And it, I mean, it's an extraordinary movie. It's black and white. It was filmed on 16 millimeter film. Uh, apparently cost them about $60,000 to do. And it's one of those movies where to make this money, they went out and begged and pleaded and knocked on doors, called everybody they knew. You know, it's like the, um, like Sam Raimi's and company Evil Dead that way. You know, there was just a, a real determination to make this movie. It's terrific. Nice. I've so got to say, math horror is not really a term I've ever heard before. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, we found our first disagreement. Uh, I, uh, I was um, aware of Pi before it came out because I was paying attention to indie film trades and stuff. And so I went and saw it in the theater and fell asleep. Oh, but it's so short. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I have seen it since. I saw it again after it came out on video um, and I have I have not ever liked a Darren Aronofsky film. I've never liked five minutes of a Darren Aronofsky film. I think he's a pretentious hack who doesn't belong near cinema cameras. Um, <laughs> well, pretentious, uh, I won't argue with pretentious, that's for sure. <laughs> I haven't seen all of his films. Like I, I uh, Requiem for a Dream left such a bad taste in my mouth that it, <laughs> it was really hard. It's hard for me to start watching an Aronofsky film. So, um, so it's possible that there's something out there that is, that I would, I would cotton to, but I haven't seen it yet. I, I don't think if Pi did it for you, then I don't think there is one. Don't, uh, don't even bother. All right. Well, so are we on to three now? Yeah, I was going to say with that perfect lead in, let's go to number three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so here's another one that I sort of, I feel like I need to contextualize a little bit. It's 2006's Children of Men by Alfonso Cuaron. Um, this this was a, a film that did fairly well at the box office, clearly science fiction. Is it underappreciated? Well, he, here's why I, I make that claim. It was It was released on Christmas Day in 2006, and so was... Um, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. Um, and uh, Pan's Labyrinth is a film I, I like quite a lot, but I like it for production design and visual reasons and some kind of cool ideas. I don't think it's a particularly great movie. Um, uh, and children, it was often compared to Children of Men at the time because they're both Mexican directors and they came out around the same time and they're both kind of in the genre realm. But these are in every other respect, completely different films. And Children of Men is one of these films that, again, sort of like Ex Machina, I felt like should have made a bigger splash than it did. And I feel like in the years since it was released, it has started to gain a little bit of the reputation that I kind of predicted that it would. Um, uh, Like, I feel like it should be a 2001 level science fiction film. Like Like, it should be talked about with that kind of reverence. And it's not yet. It's not there yet. But I, I, I think another 10 years, maybe <laughs> we'll get to the place where Children of Men was this scene is this um, this highlight of uh, 
of uh, sort of science fiction, sort of dystopian science fiction. All right, John. So what is your number three? Okay, well, we're up to the top three now. And these top three are deeply important to me. So watch it if you make fun of them, okay? I mean, some of these others, maybe I did a little like, you know, you know, maybe I dropped Wing Commander in there just a little bit to get a shock. <laughs> Although it's definitely up there. But these top three, these mean a lot to me. And my number three is a movie that I try and try to get friends and family to watch with me, but they just don't understand. And it's a 1967 Hammer film, Quatermass in the Pit, which was uh, released in this country as Five Million Years to Earth. I love this movie. I can't watch this movie enough. If you're a fan of The X-Files you need to watch this movie. If you're a fan of Doctor Who, you need to watch this movie. This movie, Quatermass is a a, a a character, I think to some extent is now in the public domain. So, you know, it's a fantasy of mine to start writing Quatermass books. Uh, was a BBC character, BBC radio from the 50s. And he's very, very Doctor Who without being an alien. And this, I think, is is his best appearance. And I, you know, this is a movie... I just don't want to give too much away, but it's got this real creepiness to it. And I mean, you think of Hammer films, Hammer goes, you know, they go back a ways, uh, but you, you tend to think of them, you tend to think of a lot of, you know, horror, the Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Dracula movies, things like that. And there was some great stuff. There was some schlocky stuff. And this, you know, this particular director directed some other Hammer films, uh, Andrew Keir. But this one is special. This one is something special. All right, Bill, how about you? So this is my number two now. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, uh, John, that you mentioned that your top three mean a lot to you. I have films in here that mean a lot to me, but I didn't, I don't know what, I don't, can't, I, I did number these, but I can't, I'm not sure what my reasoning was for why they're in the order that they're in. So <laughs> you can feel free to, to uh, knock these down at, at, at leisure. But uh, my number two is Blade Runner 2049. Huh. This is a film from 2017. Denis uh, Villeneuve is the French-Canadian director. Uh, so a little story about how we saw this film. Emily and I were on a road trip the summer that this came out to the day that this came out. We were driving from Burlington, Vermont to Chicago, Illinois. And um, it turned out that we were going to be driving past Buffalo, New York, at about 7 p.m. And so while we were in on the throughway in New York, Emily got on her phone and found an IMAX screening of Blade Runner 2049 uh, right off the interstate in Buffalo at 7.15. So at 7 o'clock, we pulled off the interstate and we pulled into the parking lot, walked up, scanned our phones, got our 3D glasses and went into an IMAX theater and experienced Blade Runner 2049 in the middle of a 17-hour road trip. And uh, it was glorious. Um, I, I am of the opinion that um, Blade Runner 2049 is is the superior Blade Runner film. Ooh. And in fact, if we were doing a list of overrated sci-fi films, Blade Runner would be on my list. Mm, bold. Um, bold. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Blade Runner 2049 is gorgeous and uh, a tone poem and deeply meaningful and awesome. I just, I just love, love, love this film to death. So uh, there you go. Blade Runner 2049. I don't think it got, I don't think it got like some of these other films. I think it should be considered a more important work than it, than it seems to be. This is, I agree 100%. This is an incredibly underappreciated movie. 
it uh, it's a beautiful movie and it's a moving movie and it's um it's well done it's the you know the the directorial eye in this and the, the photography it's just a gorgeous movie i love this movie I'll just say one more thing about it, which is that I have strong feelings about Ryan Gosling as an actor. I think that he tends toward this sort of this internal sort of blank eyed performance. And I find it actually actively irritating a lot of the time in a lot of films that he is often given a lot of credit for, including like drive. I don't know if you've seen that, but like Mm -hmm. I found his performance an utter flat line and I had no, I had no connection to him as a character at all. But he does, this is a film where that particular thing that he does works incredibly well. He's literally a robot, right? Like it's a perfect melding of <laughs> so his, fits. yeah, exactly. Like it really jived well with this. Um, I tend to like Ryan Gosling in, in comedies more. Um, I'm thinking of the, the one he did with Steve Carell and, and Emma Stone. Uh, I can't even remember what it's called now, but he's he's got great comic timing and he's good at that. But this sort of like deep, you know like internal oh a first man is another one where he's like oh i've got it i can't feel my feelings unless i go to space like it just it was awful but like <laughs> but in in blade runner 2049 it worked great he's good as a robot i, I think that counts as damning with fate faint praise there <laughs> no he, he was good he actually was actively good <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right, John, you have a number two. What would that be? Oh, we're up to number two. Uh, my number uh, two is Moon. Uh-huh. Sam Rockwell. I love Sam Rockwell. Who doesn't love Sam Rockwell, right? Sam Rockwell could, you know, read the ingredients on a cereal box and I would have a great time. I mean, this guy elevates whatever movie he's in. And it is a, oh, I hate this term. I hate this term, but it is a tour de force uh, for Mr. Rockwell. And, um, you know, it is a slow burn movie. It's a, it's a character study, but it's a, a uniquely sci-fi character study. It, it's a real study in isolation. Like so much good science fiction, it's a study in identity. And it makes me think, uh, it's another one of those movies that makes me think of just how much Philip Dick has really impacted science fiction in general. You know, not just film, but just sort of the way we think of what, you know, what we think science fiction is. This, this, this addresses identity in a very, very Philip Dick way. And it does it as, as well as, as anything I've ever seen. And it's powerful and it's moving and it's sad and it's triumphant. And uh, the other the other voice in it is Kevin Spacey, whose voice is, has become, you know, with what we know now, rather creepy. So retro, <laughs> sort of retroactively, it brings a little bit of creepiness into the movie. I have a story about Moon that I think you'll appreciate, John, which is that um, the summer that it came out, I was in Portland, Oregon, and a troupe that summer had started doing what they called Trek in the Park, which was uh, episodes of Star Trek, Star Trek, the original series, but for free, uh, stay in a stage play sort of way in a, in a park with a sort of natural sort of grassy amphitheater. And that summer they were doing, that was the first one they'd done. They were doing a muck time was the episode. <laughs> and, uh, it was quite good and a lot of fun. So my friends and I went to go see this sort of like trek in the park that summer in Portland. And then like a couple of days later, we went to go see moon in the theater and the actor who played Spock, 
in the trek in the park among time was sitting in the row in front of us when we saw moon. So it was, cool. it was really cool. And then I went to like the comic book store on Hawthorne. I can't remember the name of it right mm-hmm. now, but the guy who played Kirk worked at that comic book store. So <laughs> it was like, I felt like a home, my hometown. Okay. That is spooky. And I'll tell you why, because I lived in Portland for a few years. Uh, well, maybe it's not spooky. It's just sort of a vague connection, but there was a, a group in the park there that would, was doing these like 10 minute Shakespeare plays. They was, they were, it was a blast, you know, and they did 10 minute Hamlet. And, uh, during the, the big fight at the end, the actors who weren't directly involved in the fight started, you know, humming, you know, doing vocally the background music to the fight and the background music they used. Yeah. That's it. So there you go. Some connected tissue there in Portland. Could have been the same. Some of the same people. Probably was. So I agree with you completely on Moon. And I only learned yesterday that there's apparently a sequel to Moon called Mute that Duncan Jones made and I've never seen. I have not seen it either. I only recently became aware of that myself. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have the same characters, I guess, but it is a follow up. And yeah, I can't wait to see it. I may be watching it as soon as we're done here, honestly. Uh, I, I have to say, I'm not a fan of his second, his follow-up feature, Source Code, with Jake Gyllenhaal. I don't know if you saw that, but it's not good. I thought it was all right. You know, yeah. it was okay. It was fine. No, not, you know, I don't particularly <laughs> remember time. it after I saw it, but I, I remember it enjoying myself. So. I went to the world premiere of it at South by Southwest and still didn't like it. So that's a, that's my litmus test. <laughs> if you're ever going to like a movie, it's going to be in that situation. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, so my number one, drum roll, um, uh, Primer, 2004, Shane Carruth. Never heard I, of it. I blank don't stairs. know it. I don't oh know Oh my it. gosh, you guys. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so when we're done with this podcast, you have to go and watch it right away. But I got to watch um, Mute. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. I haven't seen Mute, so I can't, rec- I cannot recommend Mute. But um, uh, so Primer is a very low budget independent film made in Texas by a guy named Shane Carruth, who also, I think there's some recent allegations about who also might not be that nice a person, but he made a hell of a movie and it won the audience award at Sundance the year that it came out. I think he has only made one film since, uh, which I still haven't seen, but primer is a time travel film and it's the film that does time travel right. It's it's the example of a movie doing time travel right. There aren't any other examples, um, and it's it 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 just nails it. They're basically a story of some some engineers, some like dot com type, but they're but they're uh, working in a garage um, and working with uh, I don't know superconducting magnets or or something, and they stumble upon a time travel mechanism that's very limited in its scope. Um, and then the ways that it ends up being abused by them for their own sort of like personal reasons end up, and it ends up sort of causing a, a causality chain of events that goes awry. And it is so much fun and it is so uh, perfectly handled. I've, I've seen it a few times, but they were all in the same week. Like I watched it on DVD and then I watched it again on DVD immediately after that. And then I made Emily watch it like two days later. So I've seen it a bunch of times, but I haven't seen it in many years. Uh, Strong recommend. And basically, you know, neither of you know about it. Like it's, it's extremely underappreciated. And I think it's one of, it's definitely the best time travel movie that's ever been made. And it's, um, and it's real hard science fiction as well, which is a rare thing in, uh, 
movies generally. So oh, it sure is. It's it's so great when an actual hard science fiction movie comes out, and it's so frustrating that those tend to be the movies that um, are the underappreciated ones. <laughs> it's true. It's, maybe that's why they don't get made very often. Probably. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. This is our our final one. Uh well, until we get to our spillovers, right? That's right. Uh, true. But <laughs> yeah. uh, my number one movie, you all have probably figured out because I haven't mentioned it yet, and it seems to be the one crossover top ten movies on our two lists, and that is New Zealand's The Quiet Earth. Nice. I mm. just adore this movie. I don't know how many times I've watched this movie. That is such a, you know, I already spoke a little about it when, Bill, when you mentioned it, but I will add that, you know, there's a million sort of last person on earth movies out there. It's a, it's a, it's a trope or a cliche. Never sure what the difference is there. <laughs> but it, it's one of them. It may be both, but this one is really, really special. And it's based on a novel that has there's a lot of controversy around this novel i haven't i haven't uh, read it this and uh, both the novel and the movie have a have their own very tiny little following but there is if you dig around on the internet there's so much speculation about what was really going on in this movie uh you know the idea that maybe he was alone maybe somehow this is a movie about being in purgatory and I think a lot of that's because of the very enigmatic ending it has. But for, for my part, I think, I really think it's a what you see is what you get movie. And I think what you see is just, uh, really special. Well, I think as I said before, Bill, you wisely noticed that given the genre and given just the history of Hollywood in general, that our lists probably were not going to include any, any women directors. So. It's true. I did. I did. After we had that conversation um, and it unsurprisingly was true that our lists did not include any um, women directors, women directors are, it's, there are a lot of women in the, in the movie industry doing creative and amazing work, but there aren't that many directors. Um, and uh, uh, our lists reflect that. And after that, I, I looked at my list and, and I do, I will say, I only have like, I think only three of them are Americans on my list of the directors. Hmm. So there's, it's got to get that going for it <laughs> in terms of diversity, <laughs> but they're all dudes. Um, so yes, I did go and look at genre movies directed by women. And I did find three that I consider to be um, underappreciated films that are directed by women. And they are in no particular order. <laughs> Uh, Real Genius in 1985, directed by Martha Coolidge. Uh, Testament in 1983, which is a gorgeous film if you've never seen it, directed by Lynn Littman. Uh, and Turbo Kid from 2015, directed by three people, one of whom was Anouk Whistle, who is a woman. Uh, and yeah, and all, th all three are definitely worth your time and did not, I don't think, got the love that they deserved um, at, in, their, in their days. Real genius has been a big one in our household. <laughs> that that might be the movie that got our kids into kind of sci-fi-ish oriented movies, just because it was so. It, the premise is silly, but you know the characters are kind of real, even though they're caricatures. So, and then you know it's got classic lines like "Your mother puts license plates in your underwear. How do you sit?" <laughs> <laughs> Little things like that. <laughs> it's also got the, the the classic 80s bad guy, right? The the EPA yes. guy from Ghostbusters. I can't think of his name right now. And he's in Die Hard. He's, he's, yeah, that guy's great. Yep. Well, I went and found three, too. And I won't say no particular order. I'm going to put them in order. 
the first one is the other asteroid impact movie yes uh, deep impact which actually I, I i found very moving it came out the same year as armageddon which uh, you know it's just not a good movie uh, i would love to say it was a great popcorn movie but i don't even think it was a good popcorn movie and it sucked all the air out of the asteroid hitting earth room such as it was and uh you know deep impact it was directed by uh, mimi letter who um came out of tv actually but and i think the only real critical success she had was the uh ruth bader ginsburg biopic on the basis of sex but anyway this is this is a movie that follows several people much like armageddon did but in, in this case the the people feel like people strange days um this was an, an a sort of odd little movie that was generally greeted with from critics and nobody saw but it was it was a movie really it's it's funny it was focused on the turning uh you know 1999 into 2000 uh which it, it you know it was only made a few years before that so it was uh it was going to uh, date itself very quickly but you know it's about it's about uh memory and letting go of the pain of the past and moving forward and um it was just terrifically done. I, I really recommend it. But by my number one, Advantageous from 2015, directed by Jennifer Fong. The movie was terrific. It was really hard to watch. Um, it's another movie that deals very much in identity. It's a very slow burn. It's just beautifully directed, beautifully acted. And it's it's a dystopia movie. I think the way we look at dystopias, something like The Handmaid's Tale. It, it reflects what's going on now. It's, it's, it's a directionality that is, is terrifying. We could go in this direction. If you ask somebody, do you really think in a few years the world is going to look like that? No. I mean, this is true with, with most dystopias. No, you don't really think you're getting there. But we are going that way. And that's enough to be scared, and it reflects on our time. The thing about Advantageous is it's a dystopia. It's not far in the future. We could end up right there. This is a future, essentially, where, whether this was the intention or not, where all our movements for social justice, you know, uh, anti-racism movements, anti-capitalism movements, um, you know, with gender equity movements, they just don't work. And what you're looking at is something that just feels a little too real. Deep Impact is an interesting one. I So, I mean, astronomy and sort of cosmology and uh, those things are so I got um, an armchair interest of mine. And so I have some sort of awareness of the realism that those asteroid movies, the relative realism that those or uh, lack of realism, those asteroid movies had uh, at the time. And deep impact was definitely the better of the two in terms of the science, but still pretty bad. <laughs> still pretty, not, uh, not so good. Uh, but no, I agree. I think there are things, definitely things to like about it as uh, particularly in comparison to, with Armageddon, like Armageddon was such a train wreck of a, <laughs> of a movie but uh deep impact at least had some characters that you cared about oh boy you know <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous but thinking about movies that i love that are kind of in the sci-fi genre if broadly defined that i haven't seen in a while you know th this has gotten me thinking of those and there's a kids movie um meet the robinsons <laughs> that I, I would expect everybody to have seen, probably because my kids obsessed over it, 
it's just a fun little romp where, uh, you know, the, the lesson is for all you parents out there that it's okay to fail. And not only is it okay to fail, it's okay to fail because you tried and trying again is you know, the thing that you should strive for. You know, failure is great because you learned something and it's just a really fun little movie. It's got a lot of really silly um, humor in it, but it's also got some serious humor. It's got a little bit of pathos. Um, <laughs> we hadn't used that word good- yet. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Yeah. So it's very relatable and it's got the, what most people would know about this movie is from the trailer where there's the Tyrannosaurus Rex trying to get into a little corner. Um, and he says, I have a great big head and tiny little arms. And I don't think this plan was thought through very well. <laughs> He's trying to reach in the corner, but his arms can't go. <laughs> but anyway, they, just thinking about things that I would love to see again, that's in a sci-fi genre that I haven't, that, you know, is kind of lighthearted. It's been a tough week. So I want something lighthearted. And I think that I would like to go see that tonight. (laughs) But what you're saying is that you're not going to see any of the movies that Bill and I recommend. (laughs) Not tonight. (laughs) But I will. I will. (laughs) That's it for our conversation with filmmaker Bill Simmons. We hope you'll join us for our next open world chat. Our theme music is by Christopher Piat.